0: I'm Dean Mitchell, and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens. Detecting lies, deception and fraud in the world of business. Corporate criminals leave a financial fingerprint when they commit their crimes. When we find those fingerprints, those criminals find themselves in an interview room. On the other side of the table is often a detective or a corporate investigator. But what comes next? What really happens when the interview room door closes? and the fraudsters find themselves confronting the evidence of their crimes. Becky Milne is a professor of forensic psychology and is a chartered forensic psychologist. The main focus of Becky's work over the past 20 years has been the examination of police interviewing and investigation. Becky has worked with police forces globally to improve interview techniques and consults on the toughest terrorist and serious crime interviews. Becky, the work you do is really fascinating, but how did you get into it? Where did you start this journey?
1: Okay, how I started this journey was many, many moons ago. I won't give you the full, full stories. We'll be here all day. However, I did a first degree in psychology at the University of Portsmouth, and then I was very, very fortunate. I was asked to do a PhD. My mentor, my dad number two, was someone called Professor Rabel. And Ray Bull is internationally renowned for the interviewing of vulnerable groups for legal purposes. Now, I had this task with my PhD to start examining police interviewing. Now, I started that in 1992, and I'm going to keep referring back to that year because it's a really crucial year within police interviewing. Everything stemmed from 1992, and I know we're talking about other types of investigation today but all the world that you know in your organization stems from this police interviewing world so in 92 in britain Rabel was asked to write the first ever national guidance of how to interview children for legal purposes it was called the memorandum of good practice based on research now it's evidence-based policing we call it but it was for us it was called research based because at the end of the day, as a charter forensic psychologist, everything I do can result in a court, me being an expert witness. So obviously, we've always had to base any of our advising based on some form of research. We can't say, and sometimes I'd love to say, Becky Milne thinks this is a really good idea. It has to be based on some research. And when he was scribing this national guidance he realized the research base was really quite low regarding how best to interview vulnerable groups, especially children with learning disabilities, adults with learning disability. So I was asked to do this PhD with him to fill, start filling in that void. And it seemed obvious to me that if I'm going to be researching police interviewing for the next three years, that I need to know what the police do. It seemed pretty common sense. So in my first year, I worked with a local police force in the UK. They were very, very welcoming. And I just observed what they did and tried to find out what was going on in the real world of policing. And then I went over to Los Angeles and I worked in LA with someone called Professor Ed Geiserman because he, with Ron Fisher, was developing this new technique called the cognitive interview. And it was this cognitive interview that I was going to be researching for the next three years, didn't realize it was going to be the rest of my life, and trying to think about how psychology as a psychologist can fit into the world and how it can form practice. So that was in 92. So I've been doing this a long time. But in 95, I started lecturing at the university. And I helped sort of start and run the first ever police degree. And so all my teaching, really, Starting, having to look at how can psychology improve practice. I have been teaching legal practitioners and investigators the role of psychology, interpersonal skills, stress management, investigative decision making, cognitive biases, heuristics, mindsets, interviewing. I also write national guidance, so we have something called the Achieving Best Evidence Guidance, which every police officer and social worker and anyone who's interviewing vulnerable groups has to abide by for legal purposes, but I also work on real cases, so I'm there giving advice of how best to gather that accurate and reliable information from people, so I'm very fortunate, I love my job, to have some form of impact to everyday policing and investigation as a whole.
0: You've described before what happens in the interview room as not like TV. And if someone was inside that interview room, they'd probably be pretty bored. What did you mean by that? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's the glamorous TV of seeing a detective come in, solve a crime within, you know, five minutes, the quiff of their hair still sort of standing on end. But unfortunately, as you know, we all know who's doing this job, that most investigators is all about attention to detail. Research that we've done in the UK and in Australia and New Zealand, looking at what makes a good investigator, it's great communication. And even investigators will say that themselves. So it's the attention to detail. It's that minutiae of going through and filtering and examining information and trying to assess the reliability of information over time. And I think that's really important. Investigators, whatever organisation you're from, make decisions. Now decisions are only as good as the information you feed into them. Information is only as good as the questions you ask. So poor questions results in poor information, results in poor decisions. And as investigators, we want to be informed decision makers, you know, and I think that is really, really important for us to realise whether I'm a frontline communicator as a police officer just rocked up at a scene, whether I'm a paramedic, whether I'm fire service, whether I'm fraud investigators, whatever type of investigation I am in charge of conducting it's all about informed decision making. And I think we really need to be mindful of that information. So in the interview room, it's absolutely pivotal that we communicate appropriately to garner the accurate and reliable information so we can make informed decisions later on. And the problem that we all know that you need to be trained to do this. And people say, why, Becky? You know, I've been talking since the age of three. Why do I need to be trained to talk? And the problem is, if you listen to everyday conversation, we ask very closed and leading questions. You know, like I'll say to you, Dean, you know, married, kids, family. There's three leading questions. You know that I really don't want, you know, war and peace. You know, what I want is, yeah, you know, end of story. So in everyday conversation, these conversational rules actually hinder our communication within the investigative interview room. And one major thing is what we call the quantity issue. So we learned from a very young age is that detail is not required. It's called the maxim of quantity, that detail is not something that we need in everyday conversation. And so we learned in the early sort of 90s from a lot of our miscarriages in the UK in fact, police officers need to be trained how to communicate differently in that interview room. They couldn't learn through osmosis, through more experienced colleagues. So you need to be trained. So there was a real big change, a step change in the UK in the early 90s about training police officers. But then the other side of the coin was actually we had to start creating techniques to enable an investigator to utilise to allow the people you're interviewing to overcome these same communication rules. And so there was almost two lots of research going on. How do we train investigators to interview investigatively to garner accurate and reliable information, counter to their everyday conversation? And then the flip side is, are there techniques that we can create to help those investigators utilize with people that they're interviewing?
0: Becky, you've been talking there about what happens in the interview room. What doesn't happen, as we both know, is good cop, bad cop, but also makes good TV. Why doesn't that work?
1: It doesn't work because all the research shows that a humane, a humanitarian approach is what gets best results. An aggressive approach doesn't work. If anything, it will give you a false confession. So again, we don't want that false information to make informed decisions. And there's research now all over the world. And what's really quite fascinating is the basic communication rules, the basic memory rules are cross-cultural. Of course, there will be cultural twists on top, don't get me wrong, but the general principles are the same worldwide. And what we know from the most hardened criminal to the most vulnerable group, that the only way to get accurate reliable information is good decision-making with a very good approach now it all comes down to this wonderful word rapport and when we started explaining what rapport was back in the early 90s we didn't know much about rapport you know we knew it was getting on with someone it was that clicking if you go to a pub you can see people interacting you can say who's getting on and who's not getting on so we all know what rapport is by observing behavior but one can you train it Two, how do we explain to people how to develop rapport? And also, in an investigative scenario, you have to develop rapid rapport techniques. We do a lot of work with people in call rooms, you know, call handlers, control room. You know, they've got to build rapport with someone in jeopardy very quickly. So rapport really is a little bit more complex than just someone being your mate. In fact, it's not being someone's friend. It's about using verbal and non-verbal behaviour. You start establishing it at the beginning of the interaction, which could be over the phone, which actually, first interaction for the individual interviewing, could be a letter from an organisation. So even the tone of a letter can really, really make a first impression for you, the interviewer, later down the line. It's all about positivity and all the research says you cannot fake rapport. It has to be genuine. You have to have empathy. You're not condoning what people have done, but it's empathic. You have to have this natural curiosity. You can't be too emotionally charged in a negative way. You've got to engage. So a lot of it is this real mindset of going in with a positive mind. And I think that's what we've seen in the past. If you're too overly emotionally charged within an interview you really should stay away from that interview room and you know that's really important so the good cop bad cop really doesn't fit into one there's no research base two there's no backing for that and in fact all the research shows that if you just go and treat someone in a humanitarian way with respect and with a genuine interest you're more likely to get someone to talk to you
0: Becky, whilst we're dispelling myths and talking about what the research says and doesn't say, there are a number of practitioners around the world that will say you can detect lies. There are techniques that will help you do that. Do they work? What are your views on those?
1: Okay, with regard to detecting deceit, there is now quite a wealth of research. However, there are a number of ways. You can have the non-verbal way, but really, I mean, we know that humans are individual beings. So most of the you know, the research really shows that you cannot detect deceit through nonverbal behaviour. You know, we don't have the ticks. Of anything we reduce our nonverbal when we are lying because we've got cognitive resources. So our brain has so much cognitive resources. So if you are lying, you're using up some of your cognitive resources to think about the lie. So you have less resources to move. So the fact that eyes give it away, they will fidget more, you know, this is pop psychology, you know, leave it on the television. So you've got the nonverbal. Then you've got the more verbal. So there are verbal techniques. I know scan is one. The research base is really poor for scan. So the research that does exist does show that it isn't an accurate, reliable tool. There's not a wealth of research like there is with nonverbal. And so more research really is needed So when I advise police organisations and they say, shall we adopt various techniques? My message always is look at the research base and make sure you have independent research. It's almost like Bob has built the best Barbie in the world. Okay, I always use an example, not just because I'm talking to the Aussies, I promise. Bob has built... The best Barbie in the world. You know, do you believe Bob and buy his five hundred dollar Barbie? Or do you want to go and speak to Dave in Melbourne, Sue in Queensland? And is it just Australians are like Bob's Barbie? Also, does Becky like it in the UK? That's what you check in. You don't just go on Bob's word going, yes, yeah, it's a great Barbie. I mean, just think about it commonsensically. You want to look at the research not only just by Bob, but all over the country, but then all over the world. That's how I always explain it to the police. Is there enough research and independent research in peer-reviewed journals? Because if it's in peer-reviewed journals as well, it means other people have assessed the methodology evaluating these techniques. So you know it's sound researched and that's really important.
0: And finally, Becky, you've said the two main questions that a detective will want the answer to is what happened and who done it? How do they get those answers? How do
1: they get the answers to what happened and who done It does depend on the type of crime. So that's police, obviously. We know that the investigation of homicides or murder, as we like to call it over here, we're very successful generally because there's a range of evidence. So normally you might have forensic scene, you've got witnesses, you've got mobile phone footage, you've got a whole range of things. It's above 90% success rate, roughly. Being very generalistic now sexual offences unfortunately around the world and i'm generous by saying we're successful 20 percent of the time and that's been incredibly generous unfortunately so if you start looking at the crime types you have to start understanding the different types of event incidents crimes we're investigating so different type of events will require different evidence and the main problem with these word against word affairs is it is a word, it's a voice. You know, there is no forensic evidence often in sexual offences. It comes down to as someone said yes or no. So when you're trying to establish what happened if anything did and who has done it, it does really depend on the crime type. But generally it's about forensic. If we have got a bit of forensic evidence, we're all happy. You know, we probably don't ever have much, but the strength of it is fantastic within a court. As soon as we then having to gather information from other sources, speaking to people, this is when I always talk about the contamination timeline. That's when that kicks in. So a forensic scene is normally locked down. But what I want you to think about, if you're communicating with people, I'd love to put police tape around everyone's head at the scene. So everyone that you can get valuable information from, you've got to see that brain, that memory is a scene in its own right memory is like snow, it is so, so fragile that we've got to really try and protect it. And if that is our only evidence, then you know we've got to be so careful that we don't walk on it ourselves because asking really poor questions contaminates my snow. And I think, depends on the case, but if we're relying on the voice, and I think part of the voice, and I do a lot of work on trauma-informed approaches, to gaining those voices then that's what's really important is to make sure that when we interview someone be they witness victim suspect when we evaluate the reliability we look at the contamination timeline across garnering that information and you know when we do interview people we have to make sure we use what we call a therapeutic jurisprudence approach that you know we don't we traumatize them as it were that we are mindful of what we do will impact on that individual
0: So now we know that suspect interviews are less about slapping tables while yelling at people and more about forensically and carefully dissecting a version of events. Next episode, we pull up a seat inside that very interview room. We'll be joined by former Deputy Commissioner Dave Owens to hear what it's like to ask the tough questions and be face to face with deception. As long as you keep them talking or an absence of talking, they will fill that void with conversation. And that's what you're looking for. The more they're going to talk, the more chance they're going to say something that will incriminate them. With his more than 30 years fighting crime in Australia and leading specialist operations for the New South Wales Police, including counter-terrorism and undercover investigations, we'll hear more about life inside the interview room. If you'd like to know more about how KPMG works with organisations to prevent deception and restore trust, head over to our website, which you can find by searching KPMG Forensic. I'm Dean Mitchell, and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens, and I'll see you next time.